Hello. Before I start today, I want to say thank you. I have had so many people tagging me in their Spotify wrapped charts. And for a podcast that started in September, I can't believe how many of you have it in your top list, uh, let alone your top podcast. I'm very glad you're enjoying it. I'm very glad it's helping. And I'm very glad I'm doing it. So, if you've been here for a while, or if you've been here now, if this is your first time, cool. That's a very, that's the best way to say that sentence. Um, if you've been here a while, or if it's your first time, hello. Welcome to Cavancast. How it works around here is I will use a random word generator to generate five random words and then just chat about them. Chat about whatever comes to mind. Sometimes specific, sometimes vague, sometimes well off the beaten track. Hey, kind of like life. So... I am here in Scotland still. I always end up in Scotland for a longer amount of time than I intend to be in Scotland. And uh, this has started happening ever since I started coming to Scotland because I feel a real pull to this place and, you know, can definitely see myself moving here later in life. But, um, yeah, I'll always find an excuse to stay just because it's so... I don't really have an adjective for it at the moment, but um, it feels like my mind moves into a place that it's supposed to be in or that it works best in. And um, that kind of ties in nicely with the first word. And that first word is flow. Despite the fact that, okay, the, the first thing that flow brings to mind is the song Even Flow uh, by one of my favorite bands, Pearl Jam, one of the great four grunge bands of the 90s and of all time, uh, who I actually didn't get into until I was a bit older, but now I'm, I'm way more ap appreciative of it. Appreciative of it? Cool. There's them sentences again. There's them tricky words again. But yeah, the, the other thing that pops into my mind is the concept of flow state. Uh, or being in the zone, as a lot of people call it. When all of your being is, is fully immersed in whatever you're doing. Um, a feeling of energized focus full involvement and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by the complete absorption in what one does and a resulting transformation in one's sense of time. Ooh, yes. So there's definitely a time dilation thing going on there. Um, it's all a bit wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Um... Because I have lost count of the amount of times I've been like locked on to 
producing or recording or writing and then I look up and it's been like seven hours and I haven't eaten and my belly is screaming at me going I have been here for seven hours <laughs> sorry totally just ripped off Loki then I have been falling for 30 minutes I remember hearing something that changed my life when I was 12? I think I was 12. I used to do karate. I was pretty good at it, too. And um, one of the assistants, or senpai, not like that, uh, was helping me bring more fluidity and finesse to my kata. And kata is a series of movements that are choreographed in a certain way. And if you've ever seen the Karate Kid, you'll have seen kata. It's what he's doing on the beach, on the rocks on the beach, and wax on, wax off. It's all kind of kata. Um, I think they have it on Cobra Kai, the series as well. It's a pretty good series there. I quite like it. Uh, hard to do. Hard to do a series about a film that was out years ago, decades ago. Um, but they did well. They did well. Anyway, yeah, I was being kind of like lumpy and stiff with my movements. Lumpy and stiff. Like bad mashed potato. And one of the senpais. Senpais? Senpai? One of the senpai? Senpais, one of the assistants told me about a Bruce Lee quote where he talks about water. He says, water can flow or it can crash. It does whatever is required of it. So be water, my friend. And that as an image for karate and for life has stuck with me and shaped shaped a lot of how I view things. It's good, man. Because you can. You can you can flow and you can go with the flow that is around you or you can crash. So you can you can move smoothly or you can hit hard. The main thing is awareness and intention. Flow is also a nice name. I've never seen it spelt with a W, though, just as the abbreviation of Florence or Flowrider. Um, but it's nice. I like it. Hen. Hen is the next word. Um, okay. Hen commonly refers to a female animal, a female chicken. Or other gallinaceous bird. I don't... I'm, should we guess what gallinaceous means? Gallinaceous means... Uh, they got fire. They got attitude. They give a lot of face. They've just got it. You are gallinaceous. Mm, thank you. I know. That's what it is. I'm not even going to look up the definition. That's what gallinaceous means. Um, any type of bird in general. Or, 
lobster. A lobster. How did that happen? How does that... So, right, were they giving names to animals back in the day and then they named the hen? And then the lobster was like, um, I, I like that name. Can I also have it? Please? Maybe she didn't ask. Maybe she just took the name tag. Like they're doing a roll call and... Okay, so we have hen. Ah, uh, yeah, that's me. Um, you don't, you don't look like the hens. No, it's, it's me. Bahawk. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. It's also a, uh, a slang term for a woman. Oh, in Scotland it is, yeah. That's what the Scottish pigeons call each other. As well, it's very confusing. The whole thing's all right, hen. No, I'm a pigeon. No, but like hen, you're right, hen. I said I'm a pigeon. What are you talking about? I'm. I just said hello. No, you said all right, hen. I'm not a hen. <laughs> all right, calm down. I'll calm down when you stop calling me a hen. Hen. Speaking of that, I've always kind of found it weird that pre-wedded couples like pre-wedded couple parties in the UK are called stag do's and hen do's like if I ever go on one I have a I have a moment of why are we called this because I'm pretty sure historically hens and stags weren't items I could be wrong the past was a very strange place uh, but I think let, let's clear that up shall we America and like Probably everywhere else. You're fine. Bachelor and bachelorette parties. Yeah, you're good. You're good. You does what it says on the tin. The terms stag and hen parties, sometimes referred to as a do, stag do or hen do, um, originate in the mid-19th century. Although they were not necessarily tied to weddings at this time, Instead, they referred to entertainments attended by just men or just women. Victorian-era stag parties involved activities such as fishing, oyster suppers, magic trick shows, and dressing up in costume. In Ohio in 1860, a stag party comprising of 16 married gentlemen who were hoping to enjoy a sleigh ride, a supper, and a good time, generally, good time is in quotation marks, was scuppered when their wives turned up to spoil their fun. By the 1870s, the equivalent hen parties had emerged, generally featuring singing, dancing, tea, and genteel amusements. Though in 1907, one newspaper lamented that, in what is vulgarly called Vulgarly, oh my god, vulgarly, there we go, in what is vulgarly called a hen party, cigarettes and liqueurs are handed round and partaken of just as though, no, read that wrong, cigarettes and liqueurs are handed round and partaken of just as though men were of the company. Yeah, it's almost like they should be treated equally. For decades, 
Stag and hens solely referred to single-sex frolics, theatrical shows, birthdays, and parties. It was in the 1960s that the terms irreparably collided with pre-wedding celebrations. Irreparably collided. That's a very good phrase. Was it love at first sight? No, we just irreparably collided and, you know, now we're here. Hen parties at this time allowed the working bride-to-be to celebrate with her co-workers before potentially leaving her job to become a housewife and mother. That's interesting. So that's like one of those language line-blurring things that happens over time, sort of slang-wise. Like how now every dog is a good boy, no matter the gender, even if it's a girl. Or is that just me? No, no, it's not just me. Good, good, good. Um, thought so. Thank you. You're with me, right? Uh, either way, it's all good. I like putting my own stamp on things. Oh, the boy's good. The next word is stamp. And um, do you know what? I'm very happy that this word has come up because I would love to understand the love and passion for stamp collecting. I really would. So let's. If you are a stamp collector, you may just be nodding your head to this next bit being like, mm, yes, talk about it. And uh, I'm gonna. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it either way. Stamp collecting is the collecting of postage stamps and related objects. Oh, coming in with a... Uh, a curveball from left field there. Stamp collecting is the collecting of postage stamps. Oof. Okay, this is going to get deep. It is related to... Oh, God, I'm not going to get this word right. Philately? Philately? Which is the study of stamps. Philately. Philately. Oh, God, it's going to be so wrong. Oh. Philately. I'm going with philately. Make a choice, Cav. Make a choice. Make a choice. Okay. It is related to philately, which is the study of stamps. It has been one of the world's most popular hobbies since the late 19th century with the rapid growth of the postal service. As a never-ending stream of new stamps was produced by countries that sought to advertise their distinctiveness through their stamps. Stamp collecting is generally accepted as one of the areas that make up the wider subject of philately, which is the study of stamps. Okay, repeat yourself. Repeat stuff, repeat stuff, repeat stuff. A philatelist may, but does not have to, collect stamps. It is not creation of a large... No, missed the line. It is not uncommon. It is not creation. It is not uncommon for the term philatelist to mean a stamp collector. Oh, there you go. Language blurring again. Uh, many casual stamp collectors accumulate stamps for the sheer enjoyment and relaxation without worrying about the tiny details. The creation of a large or comprehensive collection, however, generally requires some philatelic Philatelic. Oh, what a word. Might not be saying it right, but it's a good word. Philatelic knowledge and will usually contain areas of philatelic studies. 
Postage stamps are often collected for their historical value and geographical aspects and also for the many subjects depicted on them, ranging from ships, horses and, to, and birds to kings, queens and presidents. Sales of postage stamps are an important source of income for some countries whose stamp issues may exceed their postal needs but have designs that appeal to many stamp collectors. Okay, I read that as stamp issues, like they have, like the stamps have issues, like mm, they have stamp issues, but what it really means is issues, as in issuing, as in like they issue stamps, as in they give out stamps or they sell stamps, not stamp issues. I'm really a product of my environment, aren't I? Why does everything need to have an issue? Um, it has been suggested that John Bork, John Bork, B-O-U-R-K-E, Johnny Boy, receiver of, receiver general of stamp dues in Ireland, was the first collector. In 1774, he assembled a book of the existing embossed revenue stamps, ranging in value from six pounds to half a penny as well as the hand-stamped charge marks that were used with them. His collection is preserved in the Royal Irish Academy, Dublin. A few basic items of equipment are recommended for proper stamp collection. Stamp tongs to handle stamps safely. A magnifying glass helps in viewing fine details. And an album is a convenient way to store stamps. The stamps need to be attached to the pages of the album in some way, and stamp hinges are a cheap and simple way to do this. However, hinging stamps can damage them, thus reducing their value. Today, many collectors prefer more expensive hingeless mounts. Mounts? Hingeless mounts issued in various sizes. These are clear chemically neutral thin plastic holders that open to receive stamps and are gummed on the back so that they stick to album pages. Another alternative is a stock book where the stamps drop into clear pockets without the need for a mount. Stamps should be stored away from light, heat and moisture or they will be damaged. There's a joke there somewhere, something about being emo, but... Um, yeah, you get it. Stamps can be displayed according to the collector's wishes, by country, topic, or even by size, which can create a display pleasing to the eye. There are no rules, and it is entirely a matter for the individual collector to, da -da 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 to decide. Albums can be commercially purchased, downloaded, or created by the collector. In the latter cases, using acid-free paper provides better long-term stamp protection. Yeah, because if you start tripping out while you're trying to put stamps in an album, you know, all the faces on them might come alive and they'll freak you out and it just won't be a good time. You have like Abraham Lincoln talking to you. You know, it won't be great. You might, you might have this whole conversation with the Queen and she'll tell you about, you know, 
queen things and royalty and you just want to collect stamps, man. You don't need that in your life. Um, okay, so with all this, I get it. Man, I, like, I was mad about Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh cards. I had albums. I had albums for my cards. Um, do you know what? If I was to buy another pack, I think I might end up getting back into it. I might head down to the store and pick up a pack of Pokemon cards or Yu-Gi-Oh cards or just novelty cards and just open them as a YouTube video. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. So now we understand the wide world of stamp collecting. Let me teach you about microphones, which is the next word. Microphones are something I am rather well versed in. Uh, I've been using them pretty much my whole life. Well, like since I was 12-ish. Actually, actually no younger. I, um, I sang Michael Jackson in year six at the school talent show. I did not win. Not at all. And rightfully so. No one, no one would uh, ever want to hear that rendition of Thriller. Unless. No, no, I, I, I know you don't. I'm not trying to make your decision for you, but you don't. So let's talk about microphones and uh, the fellas over at HowStuffWorks.com are more eloquent than I. So sound is an amazing thing. All of the different noises we hear are caused by minute pressure differences. That was a good one. I was like minute pressure differences. Nope. Minute pressure differences. Ah, my brain's starting to work. Minute, pref minute pressure differences in the year. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, that's some that's some karma flexing about my big brain knowledge. And then I pronounce pressure as prefer and air as year. Oh, wicked! Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's okay. Okay. All of the different noises we hear are caused by minute pressure differences in the air around us. What's great about it is the air transmits those pressure changes so well and so accurately over relatively long distances. The first microphone was a metal diaphragm attached to a needle, and this needle scratched a pattern onto a piece of metal foil. The pressure differences in the air that occurred when someone spoke towards the diaphragm moved the diaphragm which moved the needle, which then recorded on the foil. When the needle was later run back over the foil, the vibrations scratched on the foil would then move the diaphragm and recreate the sound. The fact that this purely mechanical system works shows how much energy the vibrations in the air can have, 100%. All modern microphones are trying to accomplish the same thing as the original, but do it electronically rather than mechanically. A microphone wants to take the varying pressure waves in the air and convert them into varying electrical signals. That's what it wants to do, guys. Just let it do it. Just let it do its thing. There's many different types of microphones, um, but most of the time... Oh, this is, this is me now. Hello. Hello, back to Kevin. 
most of the time and for most situations you but you probably won't find anything else being used other than dynamic microphones and condenser microphones generally speaking dynamic mic diaphragms are less sensitive than a condenser so if you're if you're going for finesse and detail in whatever you're recording such as soft vocals or the beautiful lilt of a flute you'll tend to use a condenser so i'm using a condenser right now um for anyone who wants to nerd out i'm using a rode nt1a and my ear is itchy and uh, it does the job um even like, you know, you get into the range of condenser microphones and then there's different things. Some that handle lower frequencies better, some that higher, handle higher frequencies better. And um, yeah, they all do different things, but they're all kind of less sensitive. So for my voice, a condenser works better. If I was playing hella shreddy guitar, uh, perhaps a dynamic. Um yeah, so for for a lot of the, the live stuff and the harder hitting stuff, generally you'll use it a dynamic. Um there's also ribbon microphones. I guess they're like the next step down in terms of uh frequency of use. Um but they're like extra, extra delicate. Um and they, they tend to give off like more of a like a vintage sound, so people tend to use them for that like old school vibe. Uh, in my experience, there's a big generalization, but um, yeah, yeah. I know this is uh, I know this is technically megaphone and not microphone, but I I keep thinking about that Simpsons episode where Bart has all the megaphones, like he lines up all the megaphones in in tandem with each other, and just says the word testing. Into, the, into all the megaphones and it sends this massive shockwave throughout Springfield like smashing all the glass and making all the animals go crazy and stuff and testing every time I hear the word testing I think of that cool um, the last word sculpture so okay I know I already talked about this a lot during Sandcastle um, but I just want to drive home the point that some of the sculpted creations that people make out of sand are just incredible. So please, please go Google some, because they're so nice. Aside from that, I want to go deeper, okay? We have to go deeper. Okay, so a lot of people are clearly talented in this field, right? You have people who, who can sculpt and build magnificent creations out of sand ice rock most materials right okay they can be built with but i've always had this thing that way back when way back when all of these wonders of the world came to be some of them were natural, in quotation marks, and uh, some of them were man-made, like, like the pyramids and Stonehenge. And seemingly, no one can figure out how, with the technology that they supposedly had back then, that they managed to build them as precisely as they did. 
now. Here is my theory. And if you suddenly get no more episodes of Caverncast, you'll know I was right. I think all of them were school projects. Not just any school projects, alien school projects. Now hear me out, hear me out. There were definitely some very talented art class alien kids. The kid who built the Great Barrier Reef, A+, Grand Canyon, B+. I was the kid who always played with mud. So there was the popular girls. They did all the waterfalls and then named them after themselves. Think about it. Victoria, Niagara, Angel, even the Pyramid Kid got a decent grade for his for all the precision on his angles. The neatness and the detail and all that. The Northern Lights Kid, you know, who was mad about like flowy colours and, and watercolour and stuff. Everyone's got their thing, man. I guess the basis for this whole thing is that we are, we're a civilization that's been built and their project, their like end of term project was to build something really cool for this civilization and for this world that they created. You know, you have kind of free reign to do whatever you want. It just has to be nice and it has to be detailed and it has to be, you know, has to have some zhuzh to it and you have to inject your own personality into it. So with all that, the Pyramid Kid, the, the Waterfall Girls, the Barrier Reef Kid, all of them, they were all out there getting good grades. And then, then there was the Stonehenge Kid, not really an artistic bone in his body. And the best that he could do was find some cool looking rocks and put them into a circle with a couple on top of each other and just hope that he didn't fail. And you know what? Though it didn't look great when compared to all the other majestic and beautiful structures and sculptures and ooh, northern lights, this little alien dude, he was proud of his rocks. And if he's still around, if they're, if they're looking down, I'd like to think that he'd like that loads of people on our planet and our little civilization visit them and go, hey, they are some cool rocks. They are some cool rocks, man. I think that'd make him smile a bit. I've got to stop recording podcasts first thing in the morning. Maybe I should carry on recording podcasts first thing in the morning when I'm when my brain is uh, somewhat dancing around the line of my subconscious um, there you go. That's why I have on that. I felt like it was getting too factual before, so I had to throw some, I don't even know what word that was to do, I, what word I should use to describe that. Um, add some zhuzh. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, <laughs> hope you're feeling a bit more chill, uh, than when we previously when we previously, when we started, um, and it's starting to rain. 
Hey, that was good timing. Thanks, universe. Um, so, thank you again for all of you that have been listening to Cavancast and have um, got it in your in your top list on Spotify. And, and you know what? Like, that is cool. But you know, whether you've listened to it once or a hundred times, thank you so much. And I'm glad. I'm glad you found me. So. I will speak to you soon. Find me on all the socials if you want. Uh, it's all at Kevin Kingston. And take care of yourself. See you in a bit. Bye.